Hello, and welcome to Compass Church. If you have any questions about this message or are interested in learning more, please contact us. We'd love the opportunity to connect. Now, enjoy today's message. We're going to look to God's Word right now. So if you have your copy of Scripture, please open it to Ephesians chapter 4. What we're going to do, we're going to read it. And uh, we're going to read the whole thing, and then I, as we've been trying to do, what I'm going to do is I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord when we're done reading it, and then you all will reply, thanks be to God. And so I'm expecting that to be super loud and resounding because we have the early service, some early service folks here, and some second service folks, so we'll see, I know who you are, so let's see who's louder, okay, just for my own curiosity. So we'll read, I'll say this is the word of the Lord. You'll reply, thanks be to God, and then we'll turn to God in prayer. So this is God's word. Let's hear it right now. Now I say this, and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him just as the truth is in Jesus, to put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry, and don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath, and anger, and clamor, and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's, let's go to our God right now in prayer. Father, disruptions are a gift from you. God, we all have just uh, our plans, our agendas, and when you disrupt things, uh, it, it throws us out of whack. And Lord, that's a gift, God. I pray that as this morning uh, we're all thrown a little out of whack through the weather, that we would uh, have attentive hearts to look to you, to hear what your word has to say about how we as a community ought to care for one another. So God, I, I thank you for the snow, and uh, I just pray that as we hear your word, your spirit uh, would move in our hearts and uh, help us to see your word with new eyes, and that we would apply it and go out uh, and be this life-giving counterculture. We ask all these things in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. 
Well, Jane Brody of the New York Times uh, has written recently a lot about this epidemic, she calls it. It's been called a growing epidemic among Americans. Uh, and it's this idea of all the health risks that come from isolation. Uh, more and more as a culture, we are isolating ourselves. Uh, we don't have the relationships and the social networks that we used to. And it is causing all kinds of health risks to us. And so the message of Ephesians 4 today speaks loud and clearly to the context that we live in. Paul is bringing everything that we just read and everything that's come before him in the book of Ephesians, he's bringing it all right now full circle. And, and so he's giving us what theologians have called the law of Christ. Um, so the passage that we're looking at, Paul gives us these really specific commands. Like, not optional things to do, like, hey, uh, you trust Jesus, and, and if you feel like it, when you get around to it, why don't you work on these few things here? You know, Paul actually lays out commands, things that are not optional for this new humanity. How is this new humanity supposed to be in this context? He's saying, you need to be doing these things. But before he jumps into that, though, Paul knows us. And so we got to do some heart work. Paul's not going to just say, hey, here's a list, because he knows how our hearts can be deceitful. And we're just like, hey, give me a list. Tell me what to do, just, and I'm good. I got these seven things checked off. I am good. Like, God, get off my back. I did what you said. And so Paul wants us to work on our hearts before he gives us this list. And he wants us to see that what we do, we don't just, we don't just, God isn't just concerned with your behavior, He's not just saying, hey, adjust how you live, okay? Because I said so. You'll be really hard-pressed if you search through the Bible to find God saying, do this just because I said so. What Paul is saying in this passage here is he's saying, look, the hard work that we need to do before we get at what we need to do is this, like he's saying, who, what we do flows out of who we are. It flows out of who we are. And so Paul reminds them, he's he's digging back through everything that's come before through the book of Ephesians to say, hey, you are this new humanity, the new self he talks about here, the new, the new person. And so the, what used to be true for you isn't true now. And because you are, because of who you are, you need to live like this. And so for those of you, I know when we talk about, hey, just do this, it's like, okay, I've got a list. I'm good to go. I'm, I'm, this is how I honor God. Paul, we need to do the heart work first. So once we do that heart work, Paul wants you to first see this. He wants to say, hey, you have this new identity. You are this life-giving counterculture. See, we used to be dead in trespasses and sins. Now we've been made alive. And Paul's saying, look, you're supposed to go out in the world and be a life-giving counterculture. So he's gonna, he wants you to see that. And then and only then, when you see this new identity, we can get to this law of Christ what we're supposed to do as a result of who we are. But we can't flip that. We can't start with, what do I need to do? And I'm just going to do it. We must start with who we are, and that flows out of it. And then even after Paul tells us how we're supposed to live in this broken, sinful world, he gives us tools. He puts tools in our toolbox to say, look, you're not alone in this. Um, and so he's saying care for each other. That's what this body does. We care for each other. And that stands out because no one is doing that. He's saying care for each other, but do it with the tools that God provides. So we're going to see those seven specific ways we need to care for each other. And like don't, there's no significance to the number seven. Like last week we talked about the seven 
ones, the seven things our faith is built on, and that was significant. Uh, we just slice the passage here. So don't, there's no significance there. He keeps going with really specific things. But let's do that heart work first. Let's see how this new humanity, this new creation that God has made is a life-giving counterculture. Look with me first at verse 17. Uh, Scott hit on this a little bit when he read this. He said this, Now I say this and testify in the Lord. Now, what's he saying? He's like, oh, he, hasn't he been talking all along? Like, he's, I say this, and I testify in the Lord. Like, Paul, this is like the Bible. Aren't, hasn't all this been in the Lord? Well, he's trying, he's trying to get your attention. Like, look, what I'm about to say is really important. He's cranking up the amp, okay? I'm, what I'm about to say is really important. And what does he say? He says this, you are to no longer walk as the Gentiles walk. Now, think about what an odd thing that is to say. He's saying to a group of Gentile believers, Hey, Gentiles, don't walk as Gentiles. Hey, Columbia, Missouri. Hey, Colombians, don't be Colombians. I think, I think to help us understand kind of like what that's weird and what Paul is getting at, the author Marianne Wolfe, uh, she helps us, she gives this beautiful statement uh, that helps us, I think, bring a lot of clarity to what Paul is trying to get at. So Marianne Wolf is a neuroscientist um, who also studies what reading does to your brain. And it's fascinating. So she's done a lot of work with dyslexia and just, uh, just also like how our mind works, what happens when we read. But just like everybody in this room, Marianne Wolf stopped reading because of the internet, right? She just, distractions, email, social media, she stopped reading. And that was her life's work, was like talking about reading. And so she realized like, oh, I don't want to be a hypocrite, right? So she, she pulled out one of the old books that she said really shaped her. And so she started reading it and it was just a chore. It was just drudgery, just trying to get through just like what she used to be able to just spend an evening getting carried away. It was just like real work. And so finally, three weeks later, she was finally able to get back to the place where she had been reading before. And it reminded her of why she started reading in the first place. And and I think if we get at why she read, it helps us understand what Paul's saying here. This is what she said about why she read. She says this, I read to find fresh reason to love this world and to leave this world behind. To enter a space where I can glimpse what lies beyond my imagination, outside my knowledge, and my experience of life. Here's what she says. I read to find fresh reason to love this world and also to leave this world behind. I don't know if Marianne Wolf is a person of faith, but that is exactly the type of heart attitude and disposition that the Apostle Paul is trying to get at when he says, I urge you Gentiles... Don't live like Gentiles. See, on the one hand, he's saying this, like, hey, you're, you're not just Gentiles anymore. There's something truer about you. There's something, your identity doesn't just stop there. You're this new creation, this new humanity. You have this new identity. You're not the same, but yet you're still living in the same old neighborhood. Don't walk as Gentiles. It's not like we've been saved and we're just, we're just, boom, we're rescued into, and we're out of this broken world. We're still in the broken world that we used to be. Same jobs, same family, same friends. And he's saying, look, you are to be distinct, but not distant. He's saying, like, 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 as, as a church, we've just always struggled with that. If you just even, like, if you just read church history, it's either been, like, one of two options we always face. We either run from the hills and run from the world, or we just totally, arms open, embrace culture and totally assimilate. And, and Paul's trying to remind us of our identity like neither of those is an okay option. All right, we're not, we're, we, if you are going to not walk as Gentiles, you need to be a counterculture. And so like 
again, we're not just running and we're not just assimilating. We're here. And that's always been God's plan. Paul isn't just pulling this out of thin air. He gets it from the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 4, the children of Israel, they're about to head into the promised land. And what does Moses say to them? Hey, keep these instructions, these, this Torah, this law that God's giving you. Why? So that when you go into the land, all, that, all your neighbors, the nations around you will say, wow, these people are different. They have a God who calls on them when they answer. See how that they're in there, they're there, and they're distinct. Jesus, Jesus himself prayed this in John 17, starting verse 15. He says this, I don't pray, he's talking about his followers, I don't pray that you take them out of the world, but keep them safe from the evil one. We were always, it's always been the mission of the church to be this counter culture in a broken world. Well, and, and, and what are we, how are we supposed to be a life-giving counterculture? Well, let's keep reading and, and hear how he describes the way Gentiles walks, uh, walk. And he's really honest. He says this, they're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God. Now, if you are alienated from life, you are not alive. And so what Paul is saying is like, look, we too, we were dead in trespasses and sins. Now we've been made alive and put back around people who are not alive. And like, so what Paul is doing is he's helping them like root, like understand the context you live in. Look at verse 18. He says this, you know, uh, they're, why are they alienated? Because of the ignorance that's in them. Why else? Because of the hardness of their heart. So what's he doing now? Uh, he's starting to model what he's talked about in verse 15, speaking the truth in love. He's trying to give you a whole picture of the, the unbelieving world. That on the one hand, why do they do this? They don't know because of the ignorance. They just don't know. Well, but why else? Because of the hardness of their heart. See how he's speaking the truth in love. They're culpable. They're, they're doing this because their hearts are hard. But why else? Because they just don't know any different. They're lost. They literally are lost. And so that helps us. If we have this attitude of how we live in this broken world, and we keep that, we're able to, to avoid both of those extremes of either running or embracing. That sin is real, and we don't just like look away from it. Like, and, but also, there's a sense where we can be compassionate. We can, we can, as Jude says, we can have mercy on those who doubt because they just don't know. And so Paul's trying to help situate this and understand like, hey, this is the world you live in. People who are alienated and host, and host, you know, just uh, alienated from life. And what he's saying is it's like, you need to be there. That's where you need to be. But you also need to know who you are. And, and that's in verses 20 and 24. As before we even get to the commands, he's saying this, look, like, that, that deadness that people live in, that they don't know, that they aren't walking, that's not how you learned Christ. You, you were taught to put off the old self and to put on the new self. Paul's talking about something that's already happened. So this idea, like, we don't continually, oh, I had a bad attitude, I need to put off the old self, and then now I need to have a good attitude, put on the new self. Paul's describing what happens in our conversion. He's talking about what, what we call repentance, that like, yes, we're totally saved by grace, but like your sin and Jesus are in opposite directions. And so when you turn to Jesus, you're also turning away from sin. Paul's trying to say, this is who we are. And when we do that, we have been made new. We don't make ourselves new. When we, when we come to Jesus, when we repent of our sins, we are at that moment, we have been clothed in the new 
self, the new humanity. And so Paul is just saying this, look, this is who you are. This is how you learn Christ, is that there is a way that is lost, and that's not who you are anymore. And you're going to keep experiencing that lostness as you go through life. But who you are, are you are people who've embraced Christ and put on that new self. You are this new humanity. You are clothed in it. You are covered in it. That's who you are. That's already the reality of that. Yeah, and look at what it says. Having, in uh, verse 24, having been created in the likeness of God. You, you are new creation. As Paul's been trying to say again and again and again in this passage, is that if you are in Christ, you, this has already happened for you. This is the, Christian is, the Christian life is a battle for your identity. Do you believe who God says you are? You have been created. That's passive. That's something that's happened to you. God has made you new. And so once we start to understand that, that okay, we're distinct from our neighbors, and also we're supposed to be ser- caring for them by being this life-giving counterculture, now that we start to get that identity, we're ready to get into those seven commands. They flow out of who we are. But just, just before we start giving them to you, I just want to say, so this is how we care for each other. That's what Paul is trying to set up, that, that as a body, what he said earlier is that we, we want to be united and building up the body. So this is how we care for each other to do that. This is an act of loving and like helping promote flourishing in other people's lives. But even that, even that work, that job, comes as a gift of grace. Like even, even how we care for each other, is, this is not works. It's not like, okay, you're saved by grace. Now leave all that grace stuff behind and start getting busy. That's not what he's saying. And uh, we got to dip into our passage from last week to help get at that. So um, in chapter 4, verse 8, Paul quotes Psalm 68, uh, and he says, look, he ascended up on high, and he gave gifts to people. And so uh, what, what he's doing there is, in Psalm 68, that's a psalm of praise for the exodus. So what's the exodus? God's people needed salvation, all right? They were stuck in slavery. God rescued them, and then he took them to the desert to Mount Sinai, and then he ascended up on high, and, and, then, and then Psalm 68 says he gave gifts. What were the gifts he gave? He gave the Torah, the instruction. And so what Paul is saying is this, just like God did that with the people of Israel, Christ is doing that now. He, God saved them, God saved us. Jesus rescued us. And, and as a gift of grace, he's saying, hey, hey, walk this way. This is the way of life. This is what flourishing looks like. Walk toward this. It's not like, hey, walk, do these things and then you'll be saved. Do these things and then you'll experience flourishing. He's saying, look, you've been rescued. This is how you, as he said earlier, walk worthy of this. This is how you walk consistently with the calling that you have. And here are those seven things, the seven ways that we as a body, by grace, totally by grace, not in our own effort, not in our own like willpower, like, oh, I've got to be a good Christian. But by grace, this is how we help each other walk toward flourishing. This is how we care for each other. So the first one is found in verse 25. In verse 25, this is what Paul says. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor because we are members of one another. Here's the first way that we care for each other. The first way that we can be a life-giving community to one another is this. We practice the ministry of the word. 
We practice the ministry of the word. The ministry of the word is not just what I'm doing right now. The ministry of the word is what happens when Christians gather who've been shaped by God's word, who've just been like transformed and are constantly on their own process of being transformed when they gather and they start living consistently with that transformation. That's the ministry of the word. So Paul's already described this earlier in this chapter. He says, look, he gave teachers and preachers to equip you for the work of service. And so like we hear teaching and we think, oh, somebody's teaching me the Bible. I'm sitting in a classroom. I have a desk. I'm watching football, but I'm really trying to listen and typing. That's teaching, right? I think what Paul's trying to get at here, what teaching is, is that teaching is not necessarily sitting in a classroom with somebody, but it's going out to coffee with somebody. It's that life interaction that we do together. That's the ministry of the word. But you remember, like, Paul's not bringing this idea of speaking the truth out of thin air. The prophets talked about this all the time, that there was coming a day when God would transform his people, that he would write the law on their hearts, and then it would just flow out of them, that they'd be righteous, and they'd start speaking truth with neighbors. And that's what, that's what happens, right? We need to do that together. Then that, there's a lot of people in here who need the ministry of the word. There's people who are suffering. There's people who are in unrepentant sin. There's people who are just confused. There's people who just need encouragement. There's people who are just going through life and need companions. And what it means to do the ministry of the word is not, oh, are you suffering? Hey, buddy, Romans eight twenty eight, man. All things for good. All things. Ministry of the word. Thanks. Call me. I'll be here all day. That's not the ministry of the word that Paul's talking about. Just like randomly quoting scripture at each other. It's a heart disposition, the ministry of the word. It's like I'm being shaped by scripture and now I bring that into the situation I'm in. So here's a a real one. Weep with those who weep. There's people suffering. You just being with someone and weeping with them is the ministry of the word. Yeah, I hear that, but I feel like I just got to insert a verse here. I feel like I just got to, that would really make it ministry of the word. No. Even a fool is considered wise when they keep their mouth shut. Sometimes the ministry of the word isn't saying anything. Don't say anything, just stand there. That's living in consistency with the word. It's being shaped by the word. It's trusting the word too. Like the other one comes from fear. Ah, I just gotta say something. I gotta do something. And it typically makes it worse. If you just say something because you feel like you gotta say something, probably you don't need to say something. That's the first way that we care for one. And it's real caring. It, it's, it's supposed to be, we're, remember, we're this life-giving counterculture. We live in a world where people isolate. And we, we don't isolate. We enter. And we enter to care. And, and so that starts out, part of the ministry of the word, a huge part of this ministry of the word is learning to listen. Both listen to God's word, listen to the person that's in front of you, and then helping those two worlds collide. That's what Paul talks about. That's the ministry of the word. And it's not just the pastors and the staff. It's all of us. We all need to be equipped to do that. Look, I'm not great at it. I'm bad at it. Like, if you ever go out to coffee with me, I don't like silence. So I'll just talk and fill the silence. Like, I, I need to grow in my, in my own ministry of the word of just listening, being still, trusting that, yeah, okay, I trust God's word. I don't need to say anything right now. And, and really living in a disposition of trust to care for the other person. That's what the Apostle Paul would call the ministry of the word. The second way that we care for each other is by being grieved by sin. Like really being broken up and grieved by sin. That's verse 26. Be angry. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. 
It's really difficult living in a broken, sin-torn world. And so oftentimes when it comes to our approach and our relationship with people who disappoint us, people who sin against us, people who hurt us, depending on your personality or just how you deal with life, you're either faced with like one or two options there. You're either just like, oh, I'm going to be gracious and just sweep everything under the rug. Like, no, don't worry about it. No problem. That's not sin. That's not brokenness. Or the other one is just come out swinging. Like, you're like, that's sin. I'm, anywhere I see it, I'm going to crush it. And so what Paul is asking for, it's saying how we can care for each other is a totally different disposition. I, I think he's asking us and inviting us to live in a space where we all kind of live with a broken heart, where we're grieved by sin. Like sin is real and we just feel the weight of it. And, and we just know that like we're sinful, the people around us are sinful, we're going to keep hurting each other, but that we then don't give into it. We don't go and sin as a result of that, either through anger or through excusing sin. And like just churches, we're so bad at this. Like nobody likes telling anyone that, hey, you're in sin, right? Like, and we should, be, we should be really careful before we do that just because we, our hearts are really deceitful and we are so often blind to our own blind spots. And sometimes we think that we're upset with someone because they're upsetting the laws of God's kingdom, but really they're, they're breaking the laws of our kingdom. But like, having done that hard work to really know like, no, this, this person is in rebellion, like, it, it hurts. It hurts to then have to say, hey, I got to put my relationship on the line here to tell you something you don't want to hear. That's hard work, but that's how Paul says, as this life-giving counterculture, we need to care for each other. Nothing kills a church faster than a church that doesn't want to talk about sin. If you stop talking about sin, people stop coming. It's a weird thing. I don't get it. You'd think it would grow like crazy, but just people just stop coming. Paul's saying that we care for each other by living with a broken heart, by being grieved by sin. The next way that we care for each other is by using our careers to serve each other. And that's found, uh, using our careers to serve each other is in verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather... Let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone who has need. Now, I think, like, when I first read this verse and when I first think about this idea, I have this picture in my mind of, like, Aladdin. You know, like, Aladdin doesn't have any food, so he steals an apple, right? And, like, it's like, wait, stop, Aladdin. Let's teach Aladdin a trade, help him work, and help him share. And, like, maybe, like, maybe that's what Paul has in mind. But I think Paul can also have in mind something here. I think he's also talking about people who work already and aren't working for honest gain. They're selling products saying like, hey, this really helps you. You really need this. And it doesn't. They don't, nobody needs that. They're not, they're not doing business justly. He's saying like, we live in a different economy. As the new humanity, how we care for each other is approaching work differently. Like we don't just leave our new humanity at church on Sunday. We take it with us into the marketplace. We are the new humanity. And so, like, we approach work differently. We're in a totally different economy. Uh, we, we, don't, we don't just, like, work to just hoard and get garages full of stuff. We work to share with those who are in need. This new economy should be marked by generosity. And, like, that goes against the American dream. Like, have a house that's super big, that you'll never use all the space, two nice cars in the garage and a garage full of stuff, that's what it means to have a good life. In the new humanity, we approach careers differently. 
That's not why we work. We work, what it says, to share with those who are in need. We work to serve and care for others. We're not, we, that's that counterculture. I mean, if you start living like that in America, people will notice. That's communicating something wildly different than how our neighbors live. We are measuring success on a, with a different yardstick. That's what Paul is saying, like, like we use our careers differently. The next way, the next way that we care for each other is verse 29. And we could spend a whole Sunday here. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Paul's saying this, use your words to give life. Now, when I was a little kid growing up, this verse was always thrown around as like justification for why I couldn't swear, right? Like why I couldn't cuss. Like the, don't use any corrupting words, okay? And I want you to see in this passage, Paul doesn't just give us a list, okay? He's not saying, hey, here's good words, here's bad words. You can say this, you cannot say this. What Paul is getting at here actually goes way deeper than that. We're, we're not just going on like shallow surfacey, like, hey, I'm, I'm walking in consistency with my calling because I don't say these words. Paul's saying that, no, words, how we talk, we, we communicate differently. Like, we're not just trying to fill silence. We're trying to serve others and build each other up. As James says, life and death are in the power of the tongue, and we should be a community that's marked by having life in the power of our tongues. That we build each other up with our words. Like, that, that's so deeper than just don't swear. Like, the Apostle Paul is not, that's not his concern in this passage, okay? Like, just a side note, Paul says naughty words, the prophet Isaiah says naughty words, Ezekiel says naughty words. Like, that they're not concerned with just like, say this, don't say this. They're concerned with like, have you connected your whole life to this new humanity? That we are people who are about life. Like we have been made alive and now life becomes the heartbeat of our life. And so what we say should be used to serve others. What we say should be used to communicate care. What we say matters. And like use your words well. There's coming a day Jesus talks about them. We will have to give an account for every word that comes out. And and what's the standard? How, How are we being held accountable to that? Did you use your words to give life? Were you a life-giving talker? Is gossip life-giving? Yes, there you go. No, it is not life-giving. That's what Paul's getting at here. We can destroy a church so easily, or we can just like keep it alive by not saying what we really want to say. But that's not what he's about. He's trying to flip you into a new way of saying it. Actually, help it thrive. Build it up. You have a responsibility to say something, and it needs to be life-giving. You, you can't just not say anything sometimes. Sometimes you need to say something, and it needs to be life-giving. It needs to give grace. This life-giving community, this life-giving counterculture is built on grace. And so if we're not communicating grace to each other, we're walking totally out of sync with who we are. That's what Paul's trying to say here. Not just words we can avoid. Next, and this one might be the most important of all, care for each other for God's sake. Don't care for each other for, your, for your, the other's sake. As Russ Moore once said, 
You can't serve a community if you get your identity from that community. If I love you because I like the way you treat me in return for that, I'm gonna, it doesn't take much time where I slowly evolve that into not love for you. I'm not going to want to upset that. I, I, you know, oh, wow, they, I, when I encourage them, oh, wow, they really respond well to that, so I'm just going to keep on encouraging them. He's saying this, like, care for each other, but do it for God's sake. Do it because that's how it's flowing out of his nature and his character. We don't love each other for each other's sake. Uh, because, like, look, when, look, what the psalmist says, like, the Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? If, if we're using our words to give grace, and if we're using our words to serve, we can very quickly, Paul knows our heart's attitudes, we can twist that so when we're just serving ourselves. But Paul is trying to help us have the courage to say, look, this is not about you, your relationship with each other, it's about your relationship with me, with God. So follow him. Like, and trust him. Like, sometimes that, it, that's the courage to say, like, hey, you, you may not be seeing the whole picture here, friend. And, and that's what Paul's trying to get at. It's like, we love each other for God's sake. We care for each other, not because, like, wow, this really worked out well, caring for each other, but because it's in line and it's in sync with God. It flows out of our relationship with God. And it protects us from altering the message. The sixth way that we need to care for each other is found in verse 31, and that's pursuing freedom from anger. You need to pursue freedom from anger. Care for each other by pursuing freedom from anger. Look at it. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and slander, all those words are relational words. All those words are like, I'm, I'm bitter, I'm angry, there's, there's discord among people. This, this bitterness is so subtle. It is so easy, so easy to be angry. Look, if you started like doing drugs and sleeping around, people would notice. And, and this is a church where they would lovingly call you back to life. But if you just slid into bitterness, people don't notice. Like, it's really hard to, like, notice, like, wh- where does this bitterness come from? It's something you can easily hide from everybody. And it can come out, in many, you can disguise it in many different ways. I'm not bitter. I'm discerning. That's why nothing makes me happy. I'm just discerning. Paul's trying to say this, like, look, it's subtle, but it's deadly. If we're going to be life-giving, if we're going to be a counterculture that helps each other walk toward flourishing, we've got to let it all go. We have to turn away from all this bitterness and this anger, speaking out against one another. Nothing kills a church, a a, a body, faster than speaking out against each other. And Paul's saying you just, you, you, you won't even have anyone to care for if you don't let this go. And the last way, the last way, that, and I think it's appropriate, I think it ties all this together. It's really connected to freedom from anger. But the last way that we can care for each other is by being a grace-centered community. Being a grace-centered community. The foundation is grace. What we do is built on grace. And this is what he says in verse 32, right? Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. And I, I just want to, maybe you're like, hey, how do I get rid of bitterness? You just kind of said this big thing, like get rid of bitterness. What does that look like? I mean, just stop being bitter. Okay, thanks. That was helpful. Uh, what he says here, though, is this. How do we do this? 
by being tender-hearted. Tender-hearted. Some of you in this room, you have feelings. Like you feel your way through life. You can walk into a room and you know who's not feeling well. Your empathy radar is through the roof. Others of you in this room, you've heard of feelings. Like you know, you know that person is crying for a reason. You just can't really figure it out, right? Like what, what's going on? Paul's saying that like, look, we, both, he, we all have our natural bents, our natural dispositions, but we can cultivate a tender heart First by letting go of that bitterness and anger. And then what does he say? Forgiving. The way to cultivate a tender heart is just forgiving people. To have a a tender heart. Think about a tender heart is something that's vulnerable. It's like saying, like, hey, this thing is soft and it can break. And like I'm just out there with it. Okay? I'm you know what? And like you sinned against me and that hurt. As as like my parents used to have this rule in our house, and I didn't appreciate it till I got older. Um, it's like, you're not allowed to say sorry, or sorry if you're Canadian, but like, you're not allowed to say sorry unless if, uh, if it's sin. So like, if I, like, so with Amy and I, I forget things all the time. Like, I'll leave clothes on the floor, and she's like, oh, you forgot your clothes on the floor. I can, that's a, I didn't sin against her, I just forgot, right? So I can, oh, sorry, yeah, I'll get that. But like, when we sin against one another, we need to be quick to like, really correct our vocabulary to say, hey, will you forgive me? Like, I, I wronged you, and there's a wrong here. And so, like, I need your forgiveness. It's not just like, oops, I messed up. I actually sinned against you, and I need your forgiveness. And when we forgive, that's a way to cultivate tenderheartedness. When we're sinned against and we choose not to forgive, we're going right back up to that last verse. We're going to be bitter, we're gonna be, and that's just going to keep manifesting and keep growing into speaking out against each other and clamor and just all these fights. But if we let people hurt us, if we say, like, yeah, what you did was real, and so I'm going to forgive you. Well, you're like, what does forgiveness mean? Well, in the Bible, when the Bible talks about forgiveness, it doesn't mean sweeping things under the rug. Uh, what forgiveness is, is trusting God to punish their sin, not yourself. Trusting God to punish their sin, not you. So uh, if you think about this, like if some, some people sin against us in very, very real ways. And forgiveness doesn't always look like, hey, we're going to be best friends after this and we're going to just like walk on the beach and just look at the sunset together. Like sometimes like the relationship is damaged when really horrific thing happens. What forgiveness looks like in that situation is, look, you wronged me. You did something terrible to me, but I'm not going to punish you for that. I'm trusting it to God's justice. And what that can look like is he'll either punish your sin on the cross or you will pay for your sin on your own. But I'm not going to make you pay for your sin. I forgive you. And, and, and why? Why do we live like that? Well, Paul tells us. He says, we need to forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. This flows out of who we are. We've been loved when we didn't deserve it. We've not only been loved, we've been made alive and raised and seated with Christ. We're trophies of his grace. And so that, that enables us to forgive. Sometimes it's going to be hard. Sometimes it's, not, it's not easy, but we have the power to do it. We can trust God with this sin. Um, and, and like the word grace is all, it's used three times in verse uh, 32. There's a word for forgiveness. Paul doesn't use that word. He says this, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, giving grace to each other. 
Just as God in Christ gave grace to you. He just takes the word grace and makes it a verb and like throws it out there. He's saying, look, we, this is all grace. This is God intervening for our good. And, and that needs to shape us as a community and how we are. And, and this theologians call this section that we're, we're in the middle of right now, this is the law of Christ. We're not under the old law anymore. We're under this. And we didn't have the tools to do this before. We didn't have a new heart. But now we, we're a new creation. We're able to do this. And so Paul just says, hey, look, I, before we close here, before we go, I just want to give you two tools that will help you really fulfill the law of Christ. To do these things that you are obligated to do. This is how we have to care for each other. The first tool that we need uh, as we care for each other is his word. This all flows out of Ephesians 4.15 where he says, Speaking the truth in love. We're a community who's supposed to be marked by speaking the truth in love. This is how we do that. Speaking the truth. The truth, Paul's already in chapter 1 talked about what the truth is. It's God's word. This is, this is totally shaped and informed by God's word. That's a tool in your toolbox to be able to do this. Like, not just to throw scripture at people, but to, that you yourself are actually transformed and grow into that identity of a new humanity. Jesus, in one of the most like, popular lines of his high priestly prayer, he says this, Transform them by truth. Your word is truth. You can change. You don't have to live your life in the chorus of the song Freebird. I can't change, I can't change, I can't change. You can change. His word transforms you. Like, and that's Jesus praying that. God, transform them by your word. Some people actually argue that it should be saying, God, truly transform them. Like, really make this transformation true. Your word's true. That's how you're going to do it. Like, we aren't stuck we can change, and he's given us his word to do that, and we need to do that together. That's, how, that's the very first way we care for each other, by helping each other change toward life. And the second way, I really want to highlight this, I really want to highlight is by his spirit. We are able to fulfill the law of Christ by his spirit. Look at verse 30. Look at verse 30. This is what he says. Do not grieve the spirit of God. Okay? Why? Because by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. You were sealed. That's something that's already happened. We're not going to care for each other perfectly. Actually, we're going to mess up. We're not going to do this well at all. We've already been sealed, though. We're, we're doing this from a place of safety. That frees us to love each other. That frees us to step into hard places and they're like, I might mess up this relationship. This may not go perfectly. I might, I, I'm entering into a space with a grieving person. Oh man, I, there's my foot in my mouth. There's my foot in my mouth. Oh boy, this is awful. And you're safe. You're sealed. You are sealed in the Holy Spirit. And look, look at what it says. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not a thing. He's a person. There is a person, and that person is God around you, keeping you safe. We care for each other from a place of safety, and we invite others into that that safety with us. So how do we do this? What's the takeaway from all of this, this law of Christ? It's a heavy list, right? What are we supposed to do? Well, we just need to take that first step toward it. Like I said, isolation is a huge problem in our culture, in our context, and some of you are very isolated. Like, we need to just be known. 
Just start showing up to things. Invite people into your life. You can't care for each other if there is no other. The Christian life truly was never meant to be lived alone. We are a body. And you are robbing the body of care and health if you do not show up. If you don't plug in, if you're not vulnerable, if you're not known. We can't do any of this. And so like, if you're like, I don't know where to start, just show up. That's, that's, that's the direction that Jesus is pushing you in. And it's not safe. Like he says, look, I don't keep them safe from the world. This is messy, messy business. Relationships are hard. Relationships are messy. But this is what we're called to do, and he's given us the tools we need. Let's pray together. God, I pray that you would help us to really believe our identity of who we are, that we are this new creation, that you've made us new. And I pray that you would help us both love this world and learn to leave this world behind. God, I pray that we would care for each other very deeply, that you would move us by your word and by your spirit to really step out of our comfort zone and to enter the spaces with each other where we can truly care for one another. God, we can't do this alone. We pray that it would come as fruit of the gospel and fruit of your word and your spirit. I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.